0: Hello and welcome to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. This is a show that explores the landscape of the nonprofit organization, big and small, offers some incredibly helpful information and resources, and gives nonprofits a place to share ideas and get advice. I'm your host, Joe Turner. Our show is sponsored by SUCUP Strategic Solutions, offering a wide variety of services to help nonprofits maximize their impact. So let's get into solving the problems that might be plaguing your nonprofit. Thanks for joining us today on Impactability. Whether you run a business, whether you're having an event, or you're in charge of a staff, whatever it is, the rule of thumb is always safety above everything else. You want your workers to be safe, your volunteers, your attendees at an event, and for that matter, you want yourself to be safe too. And if safety is not a priority, when something goes wrong, it usually goes very wrong. Having a strategy in place that prepares you for and lessens the effects of a threat faced by your nonprofit is risk mitigation. And before you dismiss the topic thinking, "Ah, everyone's safe, we don't have to worry about that. Well, we may have some things for you that you might have never thought about that could be threatening your nonprofit and could save your nonprofit and perhaps even save a life. With us to discuss the threats that your organization could face, how to avoid them, how to prepare for them, we've got an amazing expert. Tony Olivo is our guest today. Tony is the Director of Investigative Services for CSI Group and a board-certified professional criminal investigator. He's been doing this for a number of years, including work as a U.S. Marshal and a huge list of citations and awards, all for his incredible work in law enforcement and risk mitigation work. Tony, we are honored to have you with us today on Impactability. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. It is really great to have you, and thank you for what you do for our community each and every day. We appreciate it. we got a lot to talk about today, Tony, but the bottom line is it's all about safety, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. Absolutely. Keeping everyone safe, our staff, our clients, our customers, the community
0: around us. You and I had an excellent conversation last week in preparing for our podcast today. So let's start with an overall question. What kind of risk mitigation does a nonprofit have to be concerned about? I mean, after all, they're nonprofits. Everything should be safe, right? Well, theoretically, that's
1: correct. However, in the big scheme of things, there's a whole host of issues that nonprofit organizations or any organization should be concerned with. The first of which is, who are we hiring? Who are our volunteers? What type of uh, people are we allowing into our facilities, our communities, our schools, whatever type of nonprofit it is, there's always a risk involved with allowing the wrong people in
0: the facility or in the organization. And the funny thing about that is, and, and what we were talking about last week, that's one of those things that we don't readily think about. We think risk mitigation, we're automatically thinking, oh, the, to keep everybody safe at the event. But it's it starts right at the very front door of the nonprofit, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely.
0: I, I mean, you know, we think about risk mitigation is, you know, do we have alarm systems? Do
1: we have you know locks on the door? Do we have all those types of things? And while that's certainly part of the physical aspect of it, um, there are other aspects of it. Again, we start with who's working in the organization, who's working at the event. You know, if we're going to have an event and we have, let's say, a tremendous amount of uh, donors there that we're looking to fundraise with, are we asking our vendors, our caterers, our contractors, do they conduct background investigations on the people that they're allowing into this event? Not only our staff, but what about the vendors that we're utilizing? Are they doing the same type of thing? So whether it's a facility itself where we're concerned about who's working there, who's handling the money, who's, who's got contact with our clients, all those types of things, an event is equally as important.
0: And what kind of background check are you doing on those vendors, right?
1: Exactly. You know, there's, you know, what we call an online search where people can go online and kind of check somebody out for $29.95. Or then there's a professional one done by professional compliance, uh, regulated, investigative, or background check firms that will conduct a compliant and legally permissible background check. So what we'll ask vendors oftentimes or, or nonprofits when we do a risk mitigation assessment is, have you conducted vendor vetting or vendor management vetting where you're insisting that your vendors or contractors conduct the same level of background investigations that you do for your organization? And we'll we'll even ask them if can we see a copy of one of those checks just to make sure it is a a, a valid check and make sure it's uh, in depth enough.
0: Yeah, yeah. You said something I want to come back to in a little bit. I want to start by the I want to start at the level of employees and volunteers. What should we be looking for other than you know do they have a record or not?
1: Well, at a minimum, we want to look at their criminal records. We also want to look at if they have any type of uh, are they on a sex offender registry, and not just locally, but anywhere. Are the checks conducted where we can tell if this person might have been a registered sex offender in Ohio and moved to Florida and never registered on in the state of Florida? Are we checking background and criminal records? in areas where they lived outside of the state of Florida. Or for instance, you and I had talked earlier about federal criminal records. So with respect to criminal records, if you commit a bank robbery in Fort Myers, you're never gonna have a criminal record in the state of Florida because you're charged federally. And that criminal record has to come from the federal court system. So some places don't check those. They won't check the federal courts. And so th-
0: that is a big problem. So you could have a volunteer or someone on your staff that committed a federal crime, but because you didn't check that, you just checked maybe the local stats and yeah, nothing nothing on there, he's fine, she's fine. You may not know. That That is absolutely
1: correct. Not only is it correct, it is a real life example. We work with a very large nonprofit organization who had previously hired an individual who had a federal criminal offense for weapons possession of a machine gun, uh, drug trafficking, and a
0: of other crimes. But his record in the county of his residence was totally clear. Unbelievable. Wow. I mean, I, I, if anything today, Tony, I hope everyone heard that alone, because this is a really serious point. And that's what we had talked about before, how serious risk mitigation is, and all of the little intricacies we may not think of when we're checking the background of of people who might work for us as an employee or a volunteer. And I'm guessing the background checks, let's, let's get into that. Background checks are where nonprofits need to be careful, but not just employees, correct?
1: Correct. As we said, not only employees, but volunteers. There's different levels of background investigations that you can do, background checks that you can do. A lot of nonprofits have people coming to the facility to perform services, usually on a daily or sometimes week basis. And they're just contractors. They're not employees of the facility. So whether it be a school or a nonprofit organization, a hospital, a, a facility with um, vulnerable population, we take a lot of pride in checking to make sure that the right people are working for us, including checks. But at the same time, we often let people into those facilities who are working for contractors or
0: are not our employees. So how do we know if they're not
1: individuals who shouldn't be there?
0: Absolutely. You know, several weeks ago, we had an attorney as our guest. Actually, it was podcast number 23. We talked about intellectual property and we were she was telling us about someone who might fraudulently use a nonprofit's name or likeness for their own gain. Now, obviously, that can do irreparable harm. How can we protect our organization from something like that happening?
1: There are several ways that that does happen. It happens and let's call it the physical sense, where someone actually purports themselves to be someone from a nonprofit. They meet someone, they have a lunch, they, quote, unquote, get a check or do something of that nature. So that's one aspect. But I think the most prevalent aspect right now is in the cyber world. Um, there are cloned websites out there where you know, it'll look like it's a nonprofit website. The IP address will be digits off or the email address returns will look like it came from an individual within the nonprofit, but there'll be just one letter off or something of that nature. And a lot of times people get these emails and they'll think it's a legitimate email or it'll take them to a link of a website that looks like the legitimate nonprofit website. It's virtually a clone of it. And they will donate within that website. So I think that is the most prevalent way that fraudulent activity occurs
0: right now is online. So you're talking about electronics. So I'm thinking of data security, keeping our donors information safe. What about that? Well, that's a very
1: good point. I mean, the, the best thing that a nonprofit organization could do is to contract with a cybersecurity firm that would put all the necessary safeguards in place to not only protect their own information, but that of their donors. And look, it's not popular to spend money on something that doesn't return money. But at the end of the day, putting money into a cybersecurity audit and or procedures and firewalls and safeguarding the infrastructure of your internet Capabilities and your website and your your donor information and all of that, that is money well spent. Because at the end of the day, if you do have a breach, if your client's information is compromised or your donors' information is compromised, whether it be medical files or social security numbers, whatever's in there, it can cost you in the millions or tens of millions of dollars to mitigate that. And we've seen it personally. I've seen it. You know, I've seen. Organizations held hostage by ransomware and malware, you know, uh, where their donor information or client information is compromised and it
0: costs millions of dollars to recover all that stuff. So that's money well spent. Amazing, Tony. We're speaking with Tony Olivo about risk mitigation and how to keep your nonprofit as safe as possible from a variety of threats that are out there that you might not have thought about before we're going to take a short pause right now when we come back we'll talk about how you can assess the risk your organization might have we'll dive into the plethora of online people searches that are available and tony will give us a story about business due diligence that you will not believe it's all coming up in just a moment you're listening to impactability the nonprofit leaders podcast i'm jill turner we'll be right back
2: One of the biggest challenges facing nonprofits today is securing grants. Where do I find information on grants? How do I write a grant? And how do I submit the grant? And then of course, the dreaded midnight deadlines. Hi, I'm Teresa Stos, and I have been there and done that. At Sukup Strategic Solutions, we have a team of expert grant writers with years of experience writing hundreds of grants for nonprofits just like yours. Visit our website today at Strategic solutions.com and schedule a free consultation about your grant writing needs. That's s o u k u p strategic solutions.com. Let's work together and get the grant that your nonprofit deserves.
0: Welcome back to Impactability, the Nonprofit Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Turner. We're speaking with our guest, Tony Olivo, about risk mitigation, how to keep your nonprofit as safe as possible. We've got another edition of Coach's Corner coming up in just a couple of minutes. Stay tuned for that. It's a good one this week. You're going to love it. Now, Tony, back to our conversation. Just before the break, I mentioned a story that you told me that literally had my jaw hanging open all about business due diligence and what can happen if you don't. Do your homework. Can you share that story with our audience? Well, I think I told you a lot of stories, Joe, but I'll pick one or two out.
1: How's that? Uh, one of our organizations that had purchased equipment, signed on scene through an individual and had paid a significant amount of money for this equipment to uh, utilize in their warehouse facility it was a nonprofit organization and uh, it was $165,000. And the person that they Purchased this equipment from sight unseen. Never got the equipment. Um, basically, gave them an address of a vacant lot in New Jersey. So they had done business with this person before. Gave them, you know, gave them an address. They gave them a check, and they never got the equipment. But I think a couple of takeaways here. Number one is we understand that the, there's a supply chain shortage, and and there's a, a shortage of equipment and chips and everything else out there. So, Companies are so quick to want to acquire things that they need to run their operations, or nonprofits are so quick to hire people or get things in the door that they can use for their facilities, whether it be a stove or a front-end loader. They're willing to pay money for it and not inspect it, not see it, whatever. I mean, we see it in the housing boom. People are buying houses without inspecting them. We see it in the employment area. You know, we're talking a lot about pre-employment screening. And a lot of people are saying, you know what? We just need bodies right now. We're going to hire them. Well, I think down the road, you're going to pay for that. So this individual took them for $165,000. And all they really needed to do was Google the address. They would have seen it was a vacant lot. So
0: I I think at a minimum, (laughs) that would have been something that they would have done. I can't believe, well, you know what? You kind of do believe things like that go on these days and it's unfortunate, you know? And when you're talking about this and you brought this up earlier in our program, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, we can look into someone's background with one of those online searches, right, Tony? That's that's all that matters. We can just do one of those, right? Well, there are those
1: services out there, but again, those are automated services. They're, they're set up to be run by a computer. So... When you have a different service, um, an organization that has a, a trained analyst that conducts those background checks, they look for certain things like anom- anomalies and uh, you know various areas where an individual would have lived. Um, that computer is just going to return, again, like we talked about earlier. You know, the county of your residence, or are we checking federal criminal records? Are we checking de- departments of corrections? Are we looking at somebody that's handling money? Do they have any types of uh, inspector general lists or are they on any type of uh, office of financial asset and control list? I mean, there's a whole host of things that a trained analyst will look for in a background check that a computer just simply cannot do or an online service cannot do. So unless you're dealing with a company or a firm that has an analyst that's assigned to your individual account or your individual search, I I think you run the risk of being, you know, diligent enough or doing a uh, inadequate job.
0: Yeah. And nowadays, you know, safety is everything. So you can't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's almost like you can't do enough due diligence.
1: Never. I I don't believe so.
0: Assessing our risk is pretty key to all this. So what do we do? How can we do a risk assessment for our organization?
1: Well... Um, there's several ways to do that. Number one, you can hire a firm to do it. If you have a certified protection professional or certified security professional on staff, like many hospitals do and many large organizations do you should be trained through a, an organization called ASIS, is the uh, association for uh, security professionals. It's an international association or, or some other type of organization where they would get credentialed. So, they should have training and capability and the tools to do those assessments. But I think there's two types of assessments that you really need to consider. Actually, three. One would be policies and procedures. What do your policies and procedures look like? Do you have access policies? Do you have visitor policies? Do you have vet policies? You know, all of those things need to be assessed. The second thing, and, and is, your, is your staff complying with it? You know, we've seen during the assessments we've done that, The policies are great. They're in a three ring binder and they're on the desk in the HR office or something like that. But uh, is the staff at the front desk actually asking for identification? Or if you have a buzzer system at your front door and somebody walks up to the front door, are you hitting the buzzer to let them in before you ask who they are and what they're there for and why they're there and who they're there to see? That happens all the time. And so you can have policies, but unless the human element is factored in there and are they, are they complying with that? So the second thing I think you need to do is you need to do an assessment of how the staff is working within those policies and procedures that you have in place. And then lastly, I think you need to do a physical assessment, top to bottom, room to room, door to door, and look at everything, situational awareness, like where, where your desk is. So for instance, Joe, I mean, it's it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but in uh, whether it's a nonprofit HR director or if it's a corporate HR director, they often have the most uncomfortable conversations with individuals in their offices where they have to terminate people. And what's the environment of that office look like? Is it set up in such a way that if that person becomes hostile, HR trapped in there? Do they have egress? Can they get out? I mean, it's just simple things like that. Um, and that's why I mean room to room, office to office, door to door.
0: How often does someone flash a fake badge to get through? Well, I,
1: unfortunately, it happens more than you can imagine, um, or they just have one dangling around their neck, which brings in, brings up another good point. A lot of our nonprofits or a lot of ones that we've dealt with have a uh, system where they have a badge that actually people wear while they're in the hallways. And that's another thing. Like, what if somebody's walking down the hallway without one? Or what if it's an employee that you know, you've seen him around before, but he doesn't have a badge on him? Well, what happens is if that person was terminated last week and a blast didn't go out to the entire organization and this guy's in the building or this lady's in the building and they don't have a badge on, you know, we we don't challenge people. We don't like to say, hey, Joe, where's your badge? Did you lose it? Um, You know, that's uncomfortable. But if Joe's supposed to wear his badge, if that's part of the policy and he doesn't have one on, could he be a threat? potentially could be a former employee that was let go and now is looking to do something in there that he shouldn't be doing. And I think that's a big concern. I mean, we think about that, you know, people ask me what keeps me up at night. The friendly person that creates hostile environments, that's what keeps me up at night. The person that used to work there or used to go to school there or used to, you know, drop off deliveries there or something of that nature. So I think that bad situation that you just brought up
0: is very real. It sure is. And I'm glad you gave us some risk mitigation strategies that we can employ because you've said so much in that just last segment and I really encourage our listeners to, when the podcast is over, go back and listen to the last couple of minutes again because those are such key things to keep everybody safe at the nonprofit. So here's the thing, Tony, save the biggest topic for last, events. Now, COVID did away with pretty much all events, but they're starting to come back again and it's been a couple of years. So during the downtime, I'm thinking, tell me I'm wrong, but I'm thinking the bad guys probably developed some new strategies to mess things up for our events. So the question I have for you, Tony, is how do we keep our guests safe now? Well,
1: depending upon the type of event, coordinating with the law
0: enforcement,
1: seeing if there were any threats made. And also, I mean, whether it's your organization or it's donors that are attending or anything of that nature, just being aware of who may be attending, the types of people that may be attending. Um, is it what we call, quote unquote, a target rich environment? Is it a target rich environment for someone that might want to either make a statement, God forbid, unfortunately, by harming people, or just simply take advantage of the types of wealthy or high net worth individuals that might attend a fundraising event And so what types of uh, security do we have in place? Are we controlling that with a professional organization that has designed the security, everything from parking lot security to egress, ingress, emergency exits? Um, You know, we talk about safety in terms of like fire and all that stuff. That's also part of it. But we look at it more from a security perspective than a safety perspective. You know, in organizations where we're having events where there's It's held at the organization. Um, What type of camera systems do you have? What type of uh, security systems or analytics do you have within your video systems? So there's a ton of different methodologies out there, technologies that they can use. But at the very least, let's make sure we're letting the right people in the building. And let's make sure we're keeping the wrong people out.
0: And if people feel safe at your event, they're going to come back next year and the year after and the year after. I, I would
1: say so. I mean, if they're safe and, and it's a good environment, people that run security details at these events, they have a very difficult job and they do this behind the scenes and normally you don't even know they're there. So if, if that person that's looking to do harm knows that there's an event to raise money to further that cause, even though the person that's the target of their anger may not be there, they might want to send a message to the CEO or the director or the, the doctor that treated someone or, you know, heaven forbid, somebody that got uh, the, the doctor that lost their loved one. I mean, there's a lot of different variables that go into those kind of things.
0: Yeah, unbelievable. My, I got to tell you, Tony, my head's kind of spinning here just thinking about all of the ways... So we need to keep our organizations safe. And it's not just in people as we've been talking. Technology, facilities, are so much more. Tony, thank you for your expertise today and bringing this subject to light. I'm glad we had this conversation and I really hope our listeners are doing some really deep thinking on this because you've really given us lots to think about. Thank you for being on Impactability today. We appreciate you.
1: Thank you and thank all your listeners for what they do in the nonprofit sector every day. There's a lot of people out there that... They benefit from that.
0: Time once again for another edition of Coach's Corner, where we take the questions that you send us and we ask our impact coaches for their answers. And the questions you send us can be about anything. Thank you very much. If you haven't sent one, please do. Impactcoaches at impactability.net. Today's question, kind of almost a follow-up to one we had a couple of weeks ago. It's another grants question. So we've asked our grants guru, Teresa Stoes to come back for this one. Teresa, it's another great question about grants. Here's the question. We have been applying to some big grants but haven't been successful. Should we stop trying and focus on other fundraising efforts or keep at it and hope that one of the grants comes through? Great question. Now, Teresa, on Coach's Corner, you have five minutes to answer the question. Your five minutes begins right now.
2: Well, it's a little bit challenging, Joe, to answer that question when I don't have enough background information. But here's what I'm going to say. Large grants seem to equate to get rich quick, when it's really just the opposite. Large grants are highly competitive. And you have to ask yourself, are you grant ready? Do you have a viable logic model? Do you have accurate budgets that show your program work? Do you have the internal capacity to write large grants? Or do you need some outside help? Another question is, reach out to the funder. Do you know the funder? Do you have a relationship with the funder? Can you develop a relationship with the funder? Funders are more and more behind the Oz Curtain, But if they list a phone number or a email, then please reach out to them. Get their advice before you submit the grant. That will help you on the other end. And in fact, if they've talked to you and they feel positive about your proposal, you may have a chance of them actually championing your grant. So that's a wonderful thing. You also have to ask yourself, why would this funder want to fund our organization? Is there some special kind of connection? Do your research to see if they've funded organizations similar to yours and incorporate that into your application. Many worthy organizations are doing amazing work, but if the funders looking for innovative projects and that's always a hot button right now, Uh, you may not match. Can you get feedback on grants that were not denied? Again, this is getting harder and harder to obtain, but if you can reach out to someone and have them give you some feedback, please use that to incorporate into future applications. Sometimes no means just not now. Often you need to apply more than once to larger funders, especially government grantors to receive funding. We applied four times for a government grant and finally won the grant on the fourth time. Each time we were declined, we asked for feedback that was then incorporated into the next grant. It was worth it because the grant was a multi year grant totaling $600,000. And that was a significant grant for our client. And that kind of brings me to grant panels. You know, you never know who's reading your grant. And each year, It's most likely that different people, at least some different people are reading that grant. So one year's judge may look at things differently than the next year's judge. And so you have to think about writing clearly, and be really careful about acronyms. We tend to talk in alphabet soup and that language, not familiar to everyone. And also some acronyms have multiple meanings. And so if someone from a certain background, hears that acronym, they assign an, a, meeting, um, a meaning to it that is just different than what you intend. So after you've tried to go after some grants, large ones, and they haven't been funded, what should you do? Well, Joe, Grant writing as a whole is a marathon, not a sprint. It is a long haul and it's not going to happen. Rarely does it happen immediately. And so if you're an organization that's relatively new to the grant world, I suggest you start out with smaller grants to build your credibility. Also your grant muscle. Grant writing is a numbers game. Early on in my career, an instructor said to expect only 10% of new grant applications to get funded the first time out. In most cases, grants should be just one component in your funding mix, and it's usually not the largest. However, ongoing relationships with grant funders will develop the backbone of your grant funding. So all in all, Joe, I would not say give up. I would say rethink.
0: Yes, Teresa, absolutely. I totally agree with you. Fantastic answer to this question. Want to thank you for being our coach today on Coach's Corner.
2: Thanks, Thanks Joe. Appreciate it.
0: If you've got a question for Coach's Corner, we want to hear from you. Email them to us at impactcoaches at impactability.net. Again, that's impactcoaches at impactability.net. And if you want to reach me, my email address is joe.turner at impactability.net. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And that way, you'll get new episodes downloaded just as soon as they come out. Also, please give us a review or a rating so that your peers in the nonprofit industry can find us as well. I'm Jill Turner. Thanks for listening. And thank you for all you do to make the world a better place through your nonprofit.